I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Snack-Sized episode number eight. Before we get into our main topic today, we've got a couple of updates. The first update that I have is that the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association meeting uh, in October that we've mentioned a few times is definitely going to be held completely virtually. I just got that uh, confirmation today. Be looking for updates about that. That association is still trying to raise funds to be able to provide the best um, online experience for the attendees. So I think that they posted maybe on social media that there might even be a virtual 5K. How does that work? So you would just say, uh, I'm going to, well, traditionally run, but like, you know, you don't have to run. Does Waddle count? Yes. Then you're basically promising to run the 5K and have people kind of sponsor you to do it. Kind of like a mm. crowdfunding situation. There's nothing that says you couldn't walk or row or um, play. <laughs> Crawl. Five kilometers of video games. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Catch five kilometers of Pokemon. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I played Pokemon Go yesterday. It was community day and I had a really good time. I mean, Netflix movie marathon. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you would transition that into five kilometers, you know, five hours. Yeah. Five thousand minutes. So like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Five thousand seconds of <laughs> Netflix. Pretty difficult to achieve. People should probably pay you for that. Yeah, I could do that. Uh, or my favorite, you know, working in a medical office, or I guess any workplace, people are always bringing in, like, fundraisers that their kids are doing for school and stuff. It, it's mm -hmm. much less this year, mm -hmm. of course. It always made me laugh that uh, some schools are starting to go to, like, a, you can either sell cookie dough or whatever, sell wrapping paper, you know, whatever the thing is. Or at the beginning of the school year, you can just give us $50 to not be bothered <laughs> for the rest of the year. I would give that $50 so fast. I know. I know. And I, so I don't have kids, but if I did, I would be that parent. Like, do not mm -hmm. come at me about wrapping paper. Here no. is your $50. Do not bother me again. Yeah, I don't know how much fundraising you had to do as a child, but oh, I had to tons. do it constantly. Constant. And I loathed every minute of it. We well, I went to a I went to a private school. So I, I wasn't actually sure if other people experienced this, but oh, but yeah. I guess yes, they did. Yes. There was stuff you had to sell for school. And then I was involved in community sports. We had to sell things for that. And um, as I got older, um, we still had to sell things for school. And then when I was in band, we had to not only sell things for band to raise money, but also, um, you know, any of the trips that we went on, we had to uh, do these. They had these kind of situations set up to where you can go to concerts and sell pretzels. Um, the parents that were old enough sold beer. So, like, you would work the concession stand that yeah. pre-existed? Yeah. I mean, okay. I went to every um, every uh, Alabama game that was either in Tuscaloosa or in Birmingham. I was every, every single one of them selling pretzels. Huh. Um, every year I was in band, we were there every freaking Saturday. Um, we worked the Magic City Classic. Uh, we worked at the... Um, 
there was a uh, Alabama race car track that um, pretty much every weekend we had something going on. And my entire Saturday was taken up for doing that. Um, and then I was involved in a church where we had to raise money to go on trips, too. So I was constantly trying to raise money for something. And yeah. it is a pain. Going back to our original episode, what if we just adequately funded public schools to begin with? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> oh, my best experience with fundraising, though. So at my school, it was a small private school and K through 12 uh all on the same campus. The junior class always sponsored prom, right? So the junior class paid for it, mm -hmm. like, and the seniors were the guests of honor. And so junior year to pay for the prom, we had several key fundraisers, but the best one, and I don't know if they still do it, back in the day, our school had the best Halloween carnival. Like, wow. The best with a real scary haunted house. And so my, um, you know, Halloween is super important to me. <laughs> Same. Like, it's my favorite holiday. I, I love horror movies. I love all of that stuff. And so as a kid, my main memories of Halloween, because we lived out on a farm. I mean, trick-or-treating, I remember we did a little bit, but we didn't live in a neighborhood like mm -hmm. what you see in the movies where people go out trick-or-treating. It was like... You were going to get in the car and drive half a mile to my great grandparents' house where they had a little bag for us. Like that, it was like <laughs> three houses that we pre arranged to go to. But what Halloween was really all about was this carnival, and it would be like the bomb. It would be like football throw, the fish game, you know, where you put the clothespin over the thing and someone is hiding behind the curtain and they attach a little prize to it. It'd be like a cakewalk. You know, mm -hmm. where you like do musical chairs or whatever, and the last mm -hmm. person standing wins a cake. But the best part was that flipping haunted house. It was just real on gore. There would be like sc super scary. <laughs> when I was a kid, it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Classically, that like back in the true 1980s and early 90s, okay, we called it the Halloween carnival. It was like most of the time on Halloween, so you would go, your parents just kind of would dro drop you off. You mm -hmm. know, like, I mean, my mom was there. She worked at the school, but it was like, uh, it was like a taste of freedom. Like, they would be like, here's, uh, you know, however many tickets, you know, or whatever, bye. And it would just be like a free-for-all in this, in the huge gymnasium. And the, uh, the haunted house part was set up in my younger years to go through the, the boys and girls locker rooms. And it would be super scary because, like, you're an elementary school kid. You've never even been in this part of the school before. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit. You know, and um, because it's like, the you know, the football showers and stuff like that, you know, with tile floor, there would just be, like, blood everywhere and, like, chainsaws and, like, <laughs> you know, uh, Michael Myers music and, like, just, like, the creepiest hometown horror show type thing. <laughs> like a chop em up sort of haunted house. It was the fucking best. That sounds awesome. I know, right? <laughs> I want to go now. It's what I, um, it's, and I, now that I am thinking about it, I, it's what I have tried to relive my entire life. Like that, <laughs> yes. That experience. On Halloween. It's the, it's the experience that I want to give to other mm -hmm. kids on Halloween is to scare the absolute shit out of them. <laughs> yes. That's what I live for. Okay, sorry. We got really far off topic. 
bringing it back around. I found a new podcast that I like a lot. It's Mm -hmm. brand new. It's called Dear Therapists, (laughs) and it is actual licensed therapists helping people with their problems. And it's really good. A lot of people think that therapy is just venting. I mean, and that's a big part of it if you don't have like an adult outlet to vent to. Mm -hmm. But um, therapy is actually about like getting to a point where you can change your responses to things to have a more relaxing and meaningful life. So the podcast focuses on, okay, we're having this problem. What key things can we change? And then it follows up uh, like some of the episodes follow up long term about here's how successful this person was in being willing to change and making those changes. And here's what worked for them. It's really fascinating. (laughs) So I highly recommend it. Sounds good. Today, we are going to take a deeper dive into the diagnosis and management of feline hyperthyroidism. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Listeners, if you missed our last episode, episode eight, it's not essential But you might revisit that uh, before listening to this. Uh, If you didn't listen to it last time, make sure you check that episode out because it's got kind of the basics of hyperthyroidism. We're not going to rehash all of those things here. We're going to do a deeper dive into more kind of difficult, sort of tricky aspects of managing hyperthyroidism. But many of the decisions that we're going to have to navigate when we're dealing with a hyperthyroid or potentially hyperthyroid patient come down to determining whether clinical signs are present. So number one, JJ is going to review the clinical signs of hyperthyroidism with us. Pretty common clinical signs you're going to see is going to be weight loss, increased appetite, hyperexcitability or agitation, uh, increased vocalization, unkept hair coat, polydipsia, which is increased thirst, polyuria, which is increased urination, in some cases, a palpable enlargement of the thyroid gland. Yeah. Uh, you might also see GI signs that include vomiting, diarrhea, and increased stool volume. You might also see cardiovascular signs, uh, including tachycardia, uh, systolic murmurs, tachypnea, dyspnea, cardiomegaly, and congestive heart failure. Rarely, you'll see hyperthyroid cats exhibit apathetic signs such as anorexia, lethargy, and depression, but weight loss still maintains a common sign in these cats. So the bulk of today's episode is going to focus on the AAFP guidelines and how they have gone about categorizing hyperthyroidism diagnosis. They've basically listed six possible presentations and then made some specific recommendations about how to deal with each one of these types of presentations. And this information is super important. I can't even tell you how many times I've had cases over the years where I've thought, gosh, I'm really surprised that this cat isn't classically hyperthyroid based on the blood work. I wonder what I should do. This information is going to be very, very helpful because we kind of tend to think of hyperthyroidism as really straightforward and easy to diagnose. And it is in most cases. But those ones that you catch early or that have concurrent diseases can be kind of tricky. And sometimes people get confused about when to use which test. So this chart that's in that 2016 AAFP uh, hyperthyroidism guidelines PDF that's just available free online. This is super, super important. Just to recap, the group one cats, these are cats with straightforward hyperthyroidism, classic clinical disease. These are cats like the cat that we reviewed last week. 
These are going to be cats that have one or more of the clinical signs of hyperthyroidism that JJ just reviewed and a total T4 measurement above the reference interval. And as we talked about last time, that's generally above about five. We're also going to find that those cats don't have any identifiable concurrent diseases. Usually they have elevated alanine transferase or alkaline phosphatase or both. And the ALT elevations can get pretty high. I do want to just review quickly some tips for these group one kitty cats before we move on to the other types. The AAFP panel recommends using a reference laboratory rather than in-house lab work for diagnosis and monitoring. So if you're using in-house lab work to run a screening test, a total T4, and it's high, they do recommend sending that on out to the lab to confirm. Just because the outside lab, even if they're using similar equipment, uh, they tend to have less variation in test protocols, in maintenance, in sample handling, and things like that. That is technically what they recommend. So if you're seeing an in-house elevation in total T4, I mean, especially if it's borderline or in a cat that you're surprised by the results, uh, send that one out to the lab to double check. They also recommend using a consistent reference laboratory to make monitoring easier. That way that you can compare the results more easily across time as you're instituting treatment and things like that. If you're looking at a kitty cat in this group one of typical run-of-the-mill hyperthyroid cats and the cat has a significant anemia, work that cat up for concurrent diseases because that's not typically caused by hyperthyroidism. Those elevated liver enzymes that we're seeing should normalize after successful treatment of hyperthyroidism. So if we treat the hyperthyroidism, but the liver enzymes don't come down like we expect, we need to work that case up. And then if we're seeing azotemia, that means elevations in urea, nitrogen, or creatinine, we need to consider the presence of either dehydration or renal disease. So what do we do if we think the cat is hyperthyroid, but the T4 is technically normal? So in seeing kitty cats over the years, sometimes we run into kitty cats that have classic symptoms of hyperthyroidism. So they're losing weight, maybe drinking more water, urinating more, having behavioral changes. And we think, This cat's going to have hyperthyroidism, but we check and their total T4 is normal. This would be the cats that the AAFP has included in group two. Possible hyperthyroidism with probable concurrent disease. When we have these types of kitty cats, we need to try to figure out what to do, and that can be tricky. Well, they have laid it out for us. So what the AAFP panel recommends is waiting two to four weeks and then measuring a total T4 and a free T4 by equilibrium dialysis at the same time. Once we have that information, we're going to take a look, and if the total T4 value is in the upper half of the reference interval, and we have an elevated free T4, this is suggestive of hyperthyroidism. However, if both tests are still in the normal range, they're within the reference interval, then we need to check for non-thyroidal disease. JJ, what types of diseases would we be looking at checking for? Uh, Probably diabetes, Mm -hmm. GI disease, uh, including neoplasia, especially lymphosarcoma. I think that's a great list. The reason that we're wanting to make sure that we don't have other types of issues is Say you have a cat who has hyperthyroidism and we add a concurrent disease on top of that, you know, any type of other disease can artificially lower the thyroid hormone reading. You can have a patient with both hyperthyroidism and other stuff and the other stuff is suppressing their T4 to the point that it looks normal on a test. So that's basically kind of what we're looking for here. And also 
the symptoms of hyperthyroidism can be a part of other disease processes. So we just want to make sure we're not able to just find one of these other things pretty easily. So what if both of those tests, the total T4 and the free T4 that we recheck, what if they're both inside the reference interval and we go through testing for other diseases and we just can't find anything? We still really think that this pet is hyperthyroid. What are we going to do? And that's where we're going to proceed to the T3 suppression test that we mentioned in the last episode. It's not done very commonly, but this would be the situation that we would use it in. When we are looking at this, we could also consider measuring a serum TSH, that means thyroid stimulating hormone, in conjunction with a total T4 and a free T4, and looking at all of those together to try to diagnose hyperthyroidism. Now, One interesting thing about kitty cats is that we don't have a species-specific TSH assay for cats like we do in people or in dogs. So if you want to measure the TSH, you've got to use the dog test for cats. Uh, But there are studies that show that this is helpful. Canine TSH can be used to exclude hyperthyroidism in cats, but not to diagnose or confirm it. If a kitty cat has hyperthyroidism, there should be an undetectable level of TSH using that canine TSH assay. Some normal cats will also have an undetectable level, and that's why you can't just measure a TSH and call it a day. But if you're getting a cat with a measurable level, that makes hyperthyroidism very, very unlikely. So you can run this test and see If you're getting measurable levels, well, we can mark hyperthyroidism off the list, essentially. Now, the other thing that you could do is nuclear scintigraphy, and that might be a little bit difficult just because there are limited places that can do this type of test. And I typically think about teaching hospitals as the only place that that would have this type of thing. One other thing that we might run into, I, I have actually never seen this before, but I was sharing with you last time that I really suck at palpating cat thyroids. (laughs) Even though I try really, really hard, I am just not good at it. It's important to admit your weaknesses. This is a weakness of mine. But apparently other clinicians have had this happen where they examine the patient and they palpate a thyroid slip, but the cat doesn't have clinical signs of hyperthyroidism. And the cat uh, does not have an elevated T4. So they're like, man, I really thought that the cat had a goiter, but you know, everything looks normal. Well, we don't want to let those cats just ride off into the sunset. We need to monitor these kitties. And these are the kitty cats that are included in group three in the AAFP guidelines. And so for these cats, we're going to monitor them very closely and repeat a total T4 in six months. Now, in doing that, we want to make sure that the owner doesn't just drop off the face of the earth and show back up in six months to a year saying, oh yeah, I'm supposed to get this random blood work checked. The owner really needs to be measuring the weight at home. And my favorite way to go about that is to have the owner just order themselves a baby scale. They're really inexpensive, like on Amazon, <laughs> like 30 to $50. I thought that would be several hundred, but they're real cheap, you know, less than a hundred bucks. The owner can just order that and then weigh the cat. I have them weigh the cat weekly and ride it down, and then we can make sure that the kitty cat isn't losing weight. We can also go by feel, so just handling the cat and maybe teaching the owner how to do a body condition score or a muscle-wasting score on the kitty. And if that is changing, that's going in the wrong direction, then that's grounds that we need to see the cat sooner. Is there a way that they can say definitively that that's what they're feeling, that there's not maybe a mass that's Mm. similar 
or maybe a mass that's growing on the thyroid gland itself or close enough to it that they would think that that's what it is. I don't know how often that might happen. So you can do a needle aspirate and see what you find. Um, You definitely can aspirate the thyroid gland because that's what I had done when I had my thyroid mass before I had surgery. And then just look and see what sorts of cells are we seeing. Maybe send that in for cytologic review. Um, Just make sure. Maybe you have Mm -hmm. the cat come in once a month for that six months and palpate the neck. What should we do if we had a cat that doesn't have any at-home clinical signs, but on physical exam, there's some things that look suspicious, and there's also an elevated total T4. So the next group of cats that they've outlined, group four, are those kitties with subclinical hyperthyroidism. So if if there's question, then repeat the total T4 in one to two weeks just to see, make sure it's not spurious. You know, there are no perfect tests. You can have a wrong test sometimes. So if the owner is like, I don't know. I mean, I know you're saying that the thyroid is elevated, but I just feel like they're fine. Repeat it. If it's still elevated in that one to two weeks, you need to treat that cat. If you repeat the T4, though, and it's normal, we're, again, still not going to let that cat ride off into the sunset. We're going to recheck this cat in six months, again, with a physical exam and a T4, and have them buy a baby scale, monitor the weight at home, all of those things in the meantime. Sometimes we might have kitty cats who have clinical signs and an elevated T4, uh, but they also have one or more concurrent diseases that we already know about, or maybe they get diagnosed at the same time. JJ, what are some of the common comorbidities that we see in cats with hyperthyroidism? Thyrotoxic heart disease. That's going to be injury to the heart itself from the high levels of circulating thyroid hormone. Hypertension. Elevated blood pressure. Retinopathy. Changes to the retina of unspecified cause. Uh, Chronic kidney disease. uh, GI disease, including malabsorption vitamin B12 deficiency, uh, and insulin resistance. Yeah, and then that could, of course, in cats, lead to a diabetic state. So we have to be careful about that. In previous years, some practitioners were hesitant to treat diseases in these kitty cats with multiple diseases. The panel recommends treating all of the diseases, including the hyperthyroidism. The reason is that when you have hyperthyroidism, it's not a no big deal thing. It makes you feel bad. These cats need to be treated for their hyperthyroidism. It's very important. These cats also are going to need close monitoring. And then we've got to set owner expectations because kitty cats, um, you know, we've talked about before how these cats like to collect diseases. Cats that collect multiple diseases have to be seen frequently and we have to build a really strong client-patient relationship. And so we need to be having this talk ahead of time. Hey, owner, I know that this isn't the information that you would prefer me to be sharing with you. However, your kitty cat has multiple problems going on. We're going to have to work really closely together to manage these problems. And, you know, I'm going to need to be seeing you guys every three to four weeks for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And it might be that for the first six months to a year, I mean, these guys are making upwards of one trip a month to the clinic for different things. We need to make sure that the owner is on board for long-term care here. What should we do if the cat has no clinical signs, no thyroid nodule, but it does have an elevated total T4? So the last group that the AAFP has outlined, they're calling clinically normal cats. So these are cats that have no clinical signs at all. So we're not seeing anything at home. We're not seeing anything on physical exam. There's not a thyroid nodule, but 
They've got an elevated total T4. <laughs> a falsely elevated total T4 is not common. It's also not impossible because there are no perfect tests like we've talked about before. So what can we do for these guys? We can repeat the total T4 specifically using radioimmunoassay or chemiluminescent enzyme assay. If that's normal, then we need to monitor that cat and retest the total T4 every six months or sooner if clinical signs occur. That's again, we're going to be breaking out the baby scale, palpating the neck, commonly things like that, monitoring really closely for those symptoms. But if you repeat a total T4 and that's high, Even if that cat isn't showing active signs, they do recommend that you go ahead and treat that cat because the cat might be subclinical now. Waiting until the kitty cat has active clinical signs is not ideal because those clinical signs are not benign. JJ. Yep. What are we going to do if we have a kitty cat with hyperthyroidism who also has kidney disease? You're going to treat them bitches. Yeah, we're going to treat them. JJ, does methimazole cause kidney damage or kidney disease? It does not. It doesn't. You're absolutely right. It can, though, unmask pre-existing kidney disease. Yes, and this is why a lot of people have that misconception about methimazole. Historically, people did think that methimazole created some type of kidney damage, but now we know that it's actually pre-existing kidney disease that was not detectable when the pet wasn't treated for the hyperthyroidism yet. Anytime we're trying to decide about therapy, we need to think about the goal of therapy That's going to be restoring the level of thyroid to the normal range, avoiding hypothyroidism, which is not enough thyroid hormone, and minimizing the effects of treatment. In kitty cats with kidney disease, we want to treat that hyperthyroidism, but we also want to prevent developing hypothyroidism, which is low thyroid. So I personally like to keep the total T4 between about one and a half and two and a half micrograms per deciliter in my cats who are being treated for hyperthyroidism. Definitely, we don't want that total T4 less than one. And I might consider keeping them at three micrograms per deciliter or so if their clinical symptoms are well controlled. So that's kind of how I approach this. Back in the day, people used to say, ah, just give them tons of methimazole, just suppress the hell out of them because hypothyroidism isn't bad. Uh, But in fact, hypothyroidism does create problems, um, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So there's a couple of steps that we're going to take when we're managing kidney disease and hyperthyroidism at the same time. The first one is to fully determine the degree of renal dysfunction. JJ, how are we going to determine how damaged the kidneys are in these kitty cats? Best and easiest is to use the IRIS guidelines. Yes. IRIS stands for International Renal Interest Society. We don't want to just look at the chemistry profile. We also need a urinalysis. We need to check specific gravity and we need to screen for the presence of protein in the urine. We also need to get the blood pressure as well. But once we have those parameters, then we should be able to look at the IRIS guidelines and stage the kitty. So step one, stage the kidney disease. There are some things that can create changes to the serum creatinine and urea nitrogen that we might see kind of across the board in old kitty cats. Well, and I've seen it in older dogs too. Cachexia is one of them. So cachexia or muscle wasting can impact the serum creatinine value. It can cause it to be falsely low. And that's just due to the decreased muscle mass of the patient. The urea nitrogen can also be falsely elevated and that's due to protein turnover. 
Um, anytime we have a very thin patient, we need to remember that the creatinine and the urea nitrogen might not be exactly what we're seeing on the paper there. Uh, that's where your uh, muscle measuring chart can come in handy for kitties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do we do about cats who are not azotemic at diagnosis but become azotemic with treatment? for hyperthyroidism. We're going to manage those guys really carefully. Now, managing these patients is tricky. It's kind of like walking a tightrope, but it's super doable. We do need to do some consultation with the owner because in studies, we, we do see that survival time does decrease in cats that have coexisting kidney disease compared to cats with just hyperthyroidism. Those cats who do not develop azotemia after treatment tend to, to, to live longer. Um, so we do just need to let the owners know that. Um, but again, it's not that we're causing kidney failure. We are unmasking pre-existing kidney disease. So I would say that this conversation actually starts back with the original hyperthyroidism diagnosis. We always need to mention this to owners because if you don't mention it, that's the one case that it's going to happen in. Do not keep cats a little hyperthyroid to manage their kidney disease. Keeping cats, quote, a little hyperthyroid actually makes renal damage worse, but it also gives us a false sense of security because we're artificially lowering the serum creatinine level. So it's not that that lower creatinine is making the pet healthier. It's just that we're lying to ourselves about it, which is kind of worse than that. <laughs> so, um, so we always want to remember we're treating patients, not numbers. So just because numbers on a sheet are improving, that doesn't actually mean that the patient is healthier. So how would elevated thyroid cause kidney damage? So I had questions about this too. And the, the information that I looked up said that having those T4 elevations causes increased beta adrenergic activity and activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So We'll say complex physiological response. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say, what? Bless you. Yeah. This leads to increased cardiac output. Okay. So the amount of uh, blood that the heart is uh, sending through. So increased cardiac output, volume overload. Then we retain sodium. Then we get renal or kidney hypertension. We get glomerular sclerosis, which leads to worsening of kidney disease. Or... If you don't have kidney disease yet and you're just an unregulated hyperthyroid cat, they can progress to kidney disease because of these changes. So that's why we don't want to keep cats, quote, just a little hyperthyroid. It's not going to work out for us. And we're lying to ourselves. <laughs> and we don't want to do that. <laughs> How do we manage cats who are azotemic already when hyperthyroidism is diagnosed? So this is going to be where the iris staging ahead of time comes into play. And we're not going to go through the iris staging. That could be like four episodes in and of itself. Good Lord, yes. Um, it's, all of that information is free online. If you go to the International Renal Interest Society website, they've got exhaustive guidelines um, and they update them regularly. In short, we're going to stage the cat. And if the cat is iris stage one or two and we start reversible therapy, such as with methemazole, and the pet responds well and we're monitoring kidney function and kidney function is staying stable on that reversible therapy, then we might consider moving on to non-reversible therapy in those patients. Now, if we're in iris stage three or four, then 
we've got a couple more considerations. Okay, so the first one is these guys might need a little bit lower dose of methamazole. The reason is avoiding hypothyroidism or low thyroid is super important in these guys. And then we have to aggressively manage their chronic kidney disease. These cats need to be on a kidney diet, canned only food with with water added to it, and they need to be on sub-Q fluids. If they have issues with their potassium or their phosphorus, they need to be on medications for those things, okay? So we're going to treat them just like a, a major kidney disease patient anyway. And we're going to need to be very cautious about non-reversible methods of treating the hyperthyroidism like surgery or I-131 therapy. The panel didn't say don't do non-reversible methods. They said be extra cautious. I kind of err more on the don't do side. It would it would take a lot to convince me to do I-131 therapy in a stage three or four kidney disease cat. It would have to be like that the owners absolutely cannot handle the cat in any way. I mean, because everyone can put on, you know, transdermal methimazole, I feel like, the, unless it's like a feral cat, you know, so, <laughs> or maybe they have really severe methimazole reactions. Like, so there are times when you might think about it, but... Uh, I would proceed with caution in those guys. Seven chili peppers. Yeah, no. No, well, it only goes up to five. Oh, crap, I forgot that. But we're going to have to make the... <laughs> we have to make the chili pepper scale another episode because we're already way over time for yeah. a snack-sized episode. <laughs> so we'll we'll devote an entire... We'll devote an entire snack-sized episode to it maybe eventually here. We've, we've got a, kind of a backlog of exciting things to think about for mm-hmm. our smaller episodes. <laughs> Why do we want to avoid hypothyroidism? Okay, well, so it in and of itself can create a progression of kidney disease. And it also increases morbidity, meaning just meh, not feeling good, and mortality, which means death. Bad. Um, so uh, one thing that I found interesting was that cats can develop clinically significant, meaning it impacts them, like uh, how they're feeling, uh, iatrogenic meaning we caused it, hypothyroidism, even if the T4 is technically in the normal range, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit frustrating. Um, One study showed that 20% of cats being treated for hypothyroidism were actually iatrogenically hypothyroid. So this happens more than I thought. Uh, If you'd asked me, I would have thought it would be you know, maybe less than 10%, but 20% is a pretty good, I mean, so two out of every 10 cats we're treating for hyperthyroidism are secretly hypothyroid. Mm. That's very interesting. The guidelines are advocating for using that canine endogenous TSH test to rule out iatrogenic hypothyroidism, and they think it might be beneficial in optimizing Mm. the treatment and outcomes. Um, I think that's pretty. New, that's a pretty new recommendation. Uh, or as a general practitioner, I I have n- never heard of that before until we started really digging into these guidelines um, to talk about them for this podcast. So that's very interesting. I'm I'm interested to see how you know how that catches on and how often that that starts to be performed in the real world. I'd say would you use that as part of the the treatment afterwards, like every six months or so? check that and see to make sure that they're not hypothyroid? Well, you know, the guidelines, they mention that it's really just one sentence. They don't really give any any guidance as far as like case selection for this sort of thing. So I don't know if they're saying like all cats or maybe just those that you suspected in that maybe aren't doing well clinically that you're like, uh, could I be, you know, could we be too, too, 
too well managed. Um, and I would say that you could kind of take a look and say like, well, that cat that I have that's hyperthyroid that's hanging around the, like right at the one level, maybe one and a half um, on a total T4, maybe we can do this to check. But then the statement right before that um, in the actual guidelines was about how you can see um, hypothyroidism, even if it's in the normal range, like T4 wise. So then I'm not, so I'm not sure they did not specify the circumstances in, in which you'd check. So I think bottom line here is that these guys, even though we think of it as kind of a swish, slam dunk type, easy diagnosis, that's maybe a little bit of a misperception. Some of these guys have other stuff going on and they're actually a little bit more complicated than you'd think at first glance. One unfortunate thing that I want to bring up is that I have uh, encountered before some clinicians making a baseline recommendation for euthanasia anytime a cat has hyperthyroidism and kidney disease at the same time. Yeah. And I do not feel like this is an appropriate recommendation. I mean, unless the owners have just said, hey, we're not going to provide any care, then I think euthanasia is an option because, again, these are not pleasant diseases to have. We don't want the cat to suffer. But as far as a, we've looked at the blood work and based on the blood work, we're, we're offhand recommending euthanasia. I have problems with that approach. Seems a little premature before you try to treat. Yeah. Or even talk to the owner about what their goals are. I unfortunately have had a second opinion case where that was the situation. And people always say, well, did you talk with the with the referring vet? You know, maybe the owner misunderstood. They didn't misunderstand in this case. I, I did talk with the with the the original vet about it and the original vet had straight up recommended euthanasia. So um, if you're working with, you know, veterinarians that are not used to managing comorbidities, then some gentle redirection and education is appropriate if you see them making these types of baseline recommendations without also talking to the owners about their goals, then getting them this um, this packet, having them read those 2016 AAFP guidelines, I think would be really helpful. Please don't just immediately euthanize <laughs> these cats. They I've had them, I've had cats with hyperthyroidism and kidney disease be well managed for years and have a really good quality of life and bring their owners a lot of joy. So uh, we never want to just do a knee jerk response there. So during our last episode, we came up with a few questions that we weren't quite sure how to answer. So we looked some of those up. So JJ, can yes. transdermal methimazole cause that facial pruritus, which means itching reaction that we see with oral methimazole? It sure can. Yes, it can. The reaction is idiosyncratic and is not dose dependent. Yeah. When I was looking that up specifically, there was a case that I was reading about where they had a cat that had developed pruritus on methamazole on the oral form. And they were asking, can we just switch it to transdermal or can we just change the dose to lower? And the answer from the pharmacologist was no on both counts. <laughs> we had also talked about carbimazole a little bit, and that's used in Europe and Australia a lot. That's that um, that drug that's metabolized directly to methimazole. Why isn't it available in the U.S.? And I could only find that it's just not FDA approved, but I couldn't find, like, why isn't it FDA approved, you know, or, or, or even whether it's currently in the process or any, like, I couldn't find any other information other than it just isn't approved. It's so, a conspiracy. 
I don't think it's a conspiracy. <laughs> probably, probably the answer is that um, a drug company hasn't wanted to ma- to market it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Like, probably no one has come along and said, "Hey, I I need to go through all of the um the cost to get this FDA approved because I really want to market this in the U.S." That's my suspicion. <laughs> and then JJ, you had looked up some information about the Alabama state requirements for isolating cats at at the physical clinic after I-131. That was one of the questions we had last time. Um, And I I had some difficulty finding anything specific from the state. Yeah. Which isn't surprising. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I also looked this up in there. I Googled every type of variation. I could not find anything yeah uh, yeah closest thing i found was a, a clinic that's in alabama that had um uh kindly typed up in a nice uh, couple paragraphs on what the owner can expect from the time that they start the treatment till the time the cat's done at home and they're saying that for a healthy cat uh, they can expect to be hospitalized for three to five days and then go home with those special instructions we talked about last time uh, for about two weeks. So sources for this episode. We've mentioned a few times before, but the 2016 AAFP guidelines for the management of feline hyperthyroidism available online and super useful. And then also I got some of that information about the canine TSH concentration test from proceedings. Those proceedings were canine TSH concentration as a test for feline hyperthyroidism. Is it useful? And that information was presented at the 22nd Congress of the European College of Veterinary Internal Medicine for Companion Animals in 2012. Um, We'll put that full reference in the show notes so you guys can see the authors and that sort of thing uh, there if you want to look that information up. If you have stories for us, submissions for the podcast, those might be cases... They might be crazy client stories. They might be heartwarming stories. <gasps> JJ! Yes? Oh my god, I just remembered something in the middle of all this. Okay, Uh-oh. I got a message. Do you remember last... Um, For people that are listening to this, it was the episode that aired two weeks ago where we were doing story time and we were talking about a dog that had come in to an ER with a really bad wound, had to have its leg amputated, and then mm-hmm. it had just run its first 5K. Mm-hmm. The owner of that dog emailed me this week. Oh, did you get a picture? Yes. The owner was excited that the pet was featured and sent f- photos. No, no. Uh, and photos of the original wound and everything. Oh, wow. I know. So we're going to have to think about, can we put that on social media? Will they just get taken down? I don't know. <laughs> some sort of graphic warning. We put a graphic <laughs> warning. Yeah, some sort of sign. But she was like, here. <laughs> here, I have the original pictures that happened that day. You know, because, well, and in the story, it was the ER vet. I mean, mm-hmm. so obviously the vet was like, here are all the photos. Here's all the gory details. That's right. So now we have photo of the dog wearing her medal mm-hmm. also. Oh, no. <laughs> so we will post this on social media for sure. <laughs> it's very exciting. Yay. But she um but she also sent the graphic images. So we gotta decide whether that's um uh so if you uh are listening to this and you have a strong opinion about whether you would like to see those photographs or why or why not, please let us know. So if you have stories for us, those might be cases, they might be crazy client interactions they might be heartwarming tales of dogs running 5k's on three legs or 
rescuing people from fire or kitties, either one, let us know. We'll be happy to take a look. And you might even hear them here. That email address is introvetspodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to find us on Instagram and Facebook and especially on um, Apple Podcasts, which is the majority of our listeners. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe and rate the podcast. And we'll see you next time.